Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. So how are you guys doing? See, the folks, unfortunately, this isn't like smell vision, so the folks can't see us. But right now, Dan Nathan's sporting some hat. And Danny, you've got a nice haircut there. You're looking sharp. You're a good-looking man. See, I don't know if people realize, I haven't seen the movie, but you're a handsome man, Danny Moses. You haven't <laughs> seen the movie. Yeah, still, he, he hasn't seriously. seen the movie. I mean, will you send him a signed copy of the DVD? My daughter yelled at me. What she said to me exactly is, it's so rude that you haven't watched Danny's movie. I'm like, no, it's not. I mean, I have no interest in watching Danny's movie. I'm sure she's aware that I didn't play myself in the movie. So, you know, I wasn't in there. But this British actor did, Rafe Spall. Nice guy. You met each other as well. See, when they make the um, Fast Money yes, movie, I've actually asked for Brad Pitt to play the role of Guy Adami. So really? just so you all know. All right, all right. Hey, Danny Moses, fun fact. Brad Pitt and Guy Adami were born on the very same day in the very same year. Do you see one aging better than the other? Honestly, just just have at it. Not the same parents? Not, the same Not twins? I know. Separated really? at birth. Get I think we're both aging Get extraordinarily well. By the he way, just changed his folks, name. for you folks playing the home game as well, check out December 18th if you want to see birthdays. There's a laundry list of people born on December 18th. Steven Spielberg, who produced and directed uh, the Star Wars, he's born that day. Right, Dan, Nathan? You like what I did there? Horrible joke. Guy does this thing where he conflates Star Wars, E.T., and just about anything else. Harry Potter, all those bullshit movies with wands and spaceships. They're all the same thing. So the reason why, by the way, in case you're wondering why this is dropping into your lap later in the afternoon, Danny and Dan, it's because the jobs report came out earlier today. And I'm just going to throw some numbers out, and then maybe you guys can do what we do, the riff thing. Obviously, the jobs number that came out, 850,000, I think, was a number. Is that correct, Dan, Nathan? Yes, it is, sir. Better than expected, number one. I will tell you this, average hourly earnings jumped 3.6% year over year, and that's a trend we've been seeing now for the last few months. Good news, right? Leisure and hospitality added 343,000 jobs. Good news, big deal. I mean, that's obviously the reopening trade is alive and well. Labor force participation, disappointing, 61.6%. Why do I bring that up? This is why, because you have to pay people more to get them back in the workforce. It's shocking to me, after all these numbers, 6.7 million jobs short of where we were pre-pandemic, with hourly wages now at a record $30.40, the 10-year yields, as we're speaking right now, Dan Nathan, are still 1.45% or thereabouts. Guy Diamond, what are you interviewing for, like, Steve Leisman's job here? That was no, a, no, I had to break it down. Walk. You break it down for the people. You, you, you want to get down. granular here. Yeah, I guess one of the things that I would just say really quickly is that after two disappointing releases, obviously April and May were disappointing. They revised both up by 15000 each month. That's kind of a rounding error. This beat by 130000 It's fine. It doesn't seem like anybody was too geeked up here. And I think if you're looking at the market's reaction, the S&P is up 25 bips and the 
10-year U.S. Treasury yield is down one bit. It's at 144. It's a pretty non-event. And I would just say this, you know, one of the things that I keep thinking about when you talk about that hourly wages up 3.6% year over year, the prior was up 2%. That might change a lot because employers are competing for people specifically in these low-end service and hospitality jobs, seasonal too, you know, we'll, we'll always see that sort of thing. But when expanded unemployment or unemployment insurance runs out, I think employers are going to actually have to be less competitive on wages because everybody's going to go need to get a job. To me, again, I think a lot of this is transitory. I think you guys, I think I just triggered the two of you. Danny is probably just kind of chomping at the bit to get all up in my grill. I don't think the number was a surprise. You know, over the last three months, if you look a little bit disappointing, a little bit less, this is obviously more. The trend is your friend or is not your friend if you want to think that there's inflation in the market. The people that are coming back to work are getting paid more. And the people that aren't coming back to work are probably holding out. And Dan, you're right. At some point, supply will meet demand. But I actually would take a step back from that. I think it's a little bit bigger than that. I think over the last several weeks and months, the U.S. is certainly reasserting itself as, I think, the best positioned country as far as growth in the economy as it relates not just to COVID, but to other issues that are going on as well. Look at the dollar, what it's done over the last couple of weeks. And I know Guy likes to harp on the dollar getting hit. But if you look what it's done versus the euro, what it's done versus the yen, what's going on in China with new curbs coming in for growth and stuff. I just think I'm really explaining why the S&P, I think, is up is because it's still the sexiest game in town. This number on the unemployment, even though there's a lot in there, it's not just the 5.9 percent, I think gives people the comfort. Obviously, the Fed's not going to change course July 28th or 29th into Jackson Hole, maybe. We got one one more job support coming prior to that. They can take a deep breath right now. I, I really think it's something like that. There's a lot of moving parts to it, but that's kind of my take. It's amazing to me, though. You know, that's clearly what the market looked at. I mean, they looked past all the numbers that I just rattled off and bored Dan Nathan to tears, and they just sort of focused on that 5.9% because it was obviously worse than the 5.6% that the market's looking for, which is why I think rates sort of tempered a bit, and here we are with the S&P 500, off to the races yet again, because here we are, the Fed's got air cover for whatever reason. It's a magic air cover that they have, and good for them until they don't, because at some point, those planes are going to run out of gas. But the S&P was up 14.4%, 14.4% in the first half of this year. We're obviously in July now. I think it's the second best performance we've seen in quite some time, Dan Nathan. Remarkable. Yeah, so I would just say this, that guy, what you're saying is, Goldilocks. Okay. So for the summer, so we're going to get by this data is not hot enough where the Fed gets by the July meeting. And then they have about a month and a half to Jackson Hole. And I suspect they do signal a taper in the Q4. But before that happens, I suspect you see the 10-year U.S. Treasury yield trend back towards that 1.2% or so, which happens to be its 200-day moving average. I don't think that's going to be supportive of equity prices for one reason. Equities have run so much, guy, like you just said, up 14.5% into Q2 earnings, which are really going to get started in mid-July with banks. One other thing I would add is that why oil, I'm not going to try to predict where oil is going to go. It's been sustainably high. We are going into hurricane season There's a couple that are out there already right now, so that always tends to put the oil market on its heels in a way of making it go higher. But I actually think that people may be thinking it's going to hit, it's going to start to hit the consumer. It already is hitting the consumer. Therefore, Dan, to your argument, it actually would slow down consumer spending and would not be inflationary, even though the price of oil can be inflationary to the consumer's pocket. I think it can hurt confidence. I think it can hurt spending. Retail sales, obviously, those type things. So that could be weighing on, on this as well. 
Dan, were you a breakfast cereal person growing up, Dan Nathan? Yes or no? It's binary, please. Not really. I'm not a big dairy guy. A big what? Dairy. 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 Noted. First of all, just for you folks, uh, again, playing our home game. Uh When I was in college, I had a 16-ounce box of Cheerios, Dan Nathan, and I did it in a mixing (laughs) bowl with like a half a gallon of milk. And I will tell you, as great as it was for that 20 minutes or so, I paid the price for it in the aftermath, not getting into great details. I'm mentioning breakfast cereals because General Mills, GIS, they said in their earnings release this week that they expect inflation to be running. Fasten your seatbelts, folks. 7%. 7% this year. Where's the transitory there, Dan Nathan? That's a General Mills. That's not a small little company. Okay, fine, guy. It was 2% last year, or it wasn't 2%. It was almost 2%. This is prior to the pandemic. So what, what we're seeing are all these crazy distortions. We just had a market crash, an economic crash. Then we flooded the zone with fiscal and monetary stimulus. So I just don't care about these numbers that looked 2, 3x on this V reversal that we're having that is stimulus-induced. I just don't think, like, let's start thinking about normalized. Can you submit something? I mean, listen, whether things are transitory or not, wouldn't you say you're seeing a lot in a lot of different pockets that are enough? Again, we talked about this before. Are people going to look past bad quarterly earnings if they can't pass on these prices to the consumer? I don't know. That argues to your, if rates go down to 1.2%, what happened to the stock market? I agree with you. The stock market probably went down. But I go back to, we talked about it a couple of times. What if there is stagflation? What if it's the worst of all worlds? You don't have a controlled inflation environment. Things don't control slow down, but you actually have a stagflation and keep an eye on the yield curve. You know, I know it's still 120 bips between the two and the 10, and you got to look at the five and the 30 and the five and the 10, but that's kind of what you're also seeing. And I'll say one other thing, everything kind of relates to global bond prices. Look in Germany. The bun has reversed. It's down again today. I think it's negative 23. So if you see what's going on relative to our market, that can also be inflationary in terms of relative prices of fixed income all over the world. That makes sense, except for the fact that we're talking about two different things, the economy versus the stock market. And the stock market and the bond market are, they're basically agreeing with the Fed guys and they're disagreeing with you. I like that. You're right. They're posterizing us right now. So what I'm saying is, is that do you think that we went from a pre-pandemic period where we were focused on universal basic income and technology being this massive deflationary force and all these sorts of things to having this one hiccup in the global economy changing the way the future growth trajectory is. Within what has happened in COVID and is it transitory or not, the global supply chain decisions being made now are different. They are more sustainable. Bringing manufacturing back to the United States, bringing it local, the way that people want to make things, the way. So that is is going to be a permanent change. Is that happening? That is happening to a degree. I can't, I'm not going to point. Yes, it's happening. Yes, it's happening. People don't want, if, if, if you make a tube of toothpaste and you have the caps made in one place, the ingredients are made in another, and the containers made in another, people see that now as an ongoing risk. Why? Because COVID will be there the same way that terrorism created people to change their business models going forward for all different types of security, all different fortifications. COVID is going to create, is there going to be another one? Is there going to be another pandemic? Is it coming? What do I do? And how do I prepare for it in the future? And people will make products differently. They are. And I think jobs coming back to the U.S., factories, that's all a positive, but that's inflationary. So you got to take the good with the bad. I think there is a shift. How big it is, I don't know, but it's enough 
to call this non-transitory, at least to a degree, in my opinion. Well, I, I guess only time will tell here. I'm not an economist. I stare at a Bloomberg screen for the last 25 years, Monday through Friday. And I'll just tell you this. Every time there's been some massive secular shift other than the Internet, okay, in my career, everything else has been transitory every single other major thing that the pundit class wants to yell about. And just to put a button on the the General Mills thing, if I'm General Mills, this is a really easy mulligan, okay, right here to say that because they're going to have a choice. They're either going to have to pass through higher costs that may or may not be transitory to customers, or they're going to actually eat into their profit margins. So they're laying it out there. I give them credit for doing that. I just don't think that it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. I don't think Wall Street analysts are sitting there ratcheting up their 10-year estimates for costs, input costs. You know what else is transitory is our conversation about inflation, because I want to transition to the Twitter. And I'm a big fan of Dan Nathan's Twitter account. Danny Moses, by the way, you got to get more active on the Twitter I think your Twitter game is subpar at best for somebody of your <laughs> I agree. stature, but I like Dan Nathan's <laughs> Twitter account, and I'd like to read a tweet by Dan Nathan. If Uh-oh. I may indulge me, please. Uh-oh. Stocks at all-time highs sporting historically high valuations don't appear to be discounting the potential of a changing narrative for the second half 2021 growth. Dan Nathan, you put that out there. I like that tweet. You got a lot of play with that tweet, Dan Nathan. You're talking about valuations, and at a certain point, things have to matter. Isn't that true? Yeah, fact. Okay, and there was two stories that I just want to hit that I kind of quote tweeted, Guy. I know that you're still learning how to do some of this stuff. And Danny, you know, we're going to do a little webinar on some of this for you a little later. Uh, Two stories in the Wall Street Journal early in the week. One was falling treasury yields revealed doubts about how strong the economy will be in the coming years as even inflation pushes it to its highest level than more than a decade. And the other one was, hints of weakness in China's economic data come as economists have lowered expectations for growth in the world's second largest economy. I guess my point is this. Expectations are that the global economy is about to reflate and it's about to go on a tear. My view very simply is that this is not going to be a linear recovery. There's going to be fits and starts. Think back to the post-financial crisis. We had a rolling financial crisis that went to different regions. It took years and years for the globe to kind of get in sync here a little bit. So I guess my view that the second half is going to be gangbusters like this first half since we've had the vaccines, since we've seen economies specifically are open up is going to be very similar. We're going to have that same economic performance in the back half and thus the same market performance to me is not something that's being priced in right here. So with all-time highs in the markets, with high valuations on a relative basis, high consumer confidence, high, 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 I suspect this is one thing that Tom Lee, who was a guest of ours on On The Tape a couple weeks ago, he put a note out, guy, raising his year-end S&P 500 price target. I think he's one of the high on the street here, but he's saying, watch out for July. And I think that you guys, I'd love to hear what you say about expectations, the market all-time highs. We're starting to see some of these early commentary about caution in the second half by some of these companies reporting, not least of which Micron, the semi-trade memory, that's supposed to be a layup, secular shift, back orders, bottlenecks, this and that or whatever. Micron's traded down about 7% since it reported earnings. Risk is mispriced around the globe. That's for sure. China is becoming a much bigger risk factor, Dan, to your point. I think the geopolitical tensions in China are only going to get worse. The things they're doing now, I mean, they basically took over Hong Kong, right? I mean, they basically took the island back over. It hasn't gotten as much press as it should. And you're seeing dictatorships, totalitarianism expand across the globe right now. It's a little bit scary at the same time. So I think that's being underappreciated. And again, 
lends itself back to the reason why U.S. companies may be finding a way to be more self-sufficient than relying. So, you know, I don't know, but it definitely poses a risk. If you watch Fast Money, you know I've loved the exchanges for a while. And 18, 1, 8 companies went public this, um, I believe it was this week, most since 2004, 17 years ago. I mean, we're getting back to epic levels. Didi Gregorius is one of those. I got to tell you, the Yankees made a huge mistake <laughs> not re-signing Didi because they got a real problem at shortstop and they got no lefty sticks. Dan Nathan, I know you're all geeked up about this what? DD, apparently a Lyft and an Uber-like company. What is wrong with you? You just have the Yankees on the brain. Everything just defaults to the, the Yankees. Everything they, defaults to sports, what they, 100%. What they, did, what they didn't do right. DD Royce makes more in a year than these guys do. <laughs> well, you know, one thing, before we get to the Chinese rideshare company, DD, I, I do think it's worth noting that the pandemic really seemed to break these rideshare companies. I'll just tell you this. I talk to anybody in a city like New York right now, pull up Uber, try to get what should be a mile and a half or something like that, normally like a $13 Uber ride. And any given time, it's going to say $33 or something like that. And people are just not doing it. And then they're also saying three minutes away, and then you agree to that $33 because you're in a rush. And then it says the car won't be there for 14 minutes or something like that. So these things are not working well. I think there's a great example of supply demand dynamics. And then there's obviously some workforce issues there. The DD thing is really interesting. This is a $70 billion market cap company chose to list here in the US. And it didn't take longer than two days before the Chinese government to kind of launch an investigation. The stock's down Friday, you know, five and a half percent on that. It seems like the Chinese really want to kind of flex as it relates to their companies and, and their listings abroad. Well, Dan, to your point, I don't think the stocks are fully reflecting that you can't get a car. They're up, obviously. You know, it's still a hot space because they're doing other things other than ride share, food, etc. Didi's interesting, right? A $4.4 billion offering on a $70 billion market cap. The anchor buyers were Morgan Stanley Investment Management and uh, Tomasic. They each were $1.25 billion, but they did this roadshow in three days. And lo and behold, to your point, Dan, two days later, China comes out and says, all right, cybersecurity issues, which they obviously knew about. And guess what? You can't sign up any new users while this investigation is going on. So a little, you know, get it out the door and see what happens next. SoftBank owns 21% of it. Uber owns 13% of it. Tencent owns 6.8% of it. So obviously it has strong backing. But from a valuation perspective, like these other guys, they don't make money. And, you know, talk about taking advantage of a hot, hot IPO market. I would say this IPO market has bringing in not just big offerings, but monster companies, monster market caps are out there, and the market is able to absorb these things. Let's just forget how they trade the following day. There's still an appetite for this stuff. It's a remarkable to me. And listen, I'm not a huge donut fan. I used to go to the Ossining Bakery for you Westchester guys and gals out there. They had the best jelly donuts on God's planet Earth. But what I will say is Krispy Kreme came – I mean – Krispy Kreme. Wasn't that a thing, Dan, like when you were in high school? Didn't they, isn't this like a reversion to the mean or like we're revisiting this whole thing? Well, a great ticker. And I would say, and Danny might agree with me, Krispy Kreme was like one of the first meme stocks, wasn't it, Danny? When, when That's this why I'm yeah. bringing it up. <laughs> yeah. Yep. So, you know, it's interesting how you stick around long enough. I know, guy, you've been sticking around for like 70 market cycles here. Everything that goes public and there's a lot of fanfare, then it kind of bombs out, then they take it private and then they bring it back out. Yeah, this one's a hot one. Switching gears from the donut trade. Let's get to the meme trade. Robinhood filed to go public, maybe a $40 billion 
dollar deal. I think that number is kind of interesting. If we look at Coinbase right here, which went public through a direct listing in mid-April or so, it's got like a $45, $46 billion market cap at one point. I think it was close to to $80 billion. But man, that filing yesterday, and I know you guys are going to have a lot to say about it, but there's one headline that stuck out to me that it said, this was kind of in its kind of warning section for investors, that there is a warrant for the CEO of Robinhood for its cell phone, okay? What the heck is going on there? Obviously, we've been talking about Robinhood a great deal over the course of this year, but it just seems to be a very odd bookend in 2021 that we start off with this meme stock thing where they obviously benefited. They benefited from crypto trading. We'll get into that in a little bit here. They're obviously gotten a lot of trouble, both with regulators, but also from a PR standpoint. And now they're rushing to go public here. It's just something doesn't add up right here. It's scary. You have two fines in the last six to eight months between FINRA and, and SEC that have accounted, I think, for over $120 million. One had to do with not disclosing payment for order flow, how much money you were making from it, which, by the way, I think is still 70 to 75% of the revenue, which, by the way, is under scrutiny by the SEC. Ginsler has made comments directed at Robinhood about that disclosure and the practice. The fact that Robinhood actually said they're willing to give up a little bit more to the market makers at the expense of their clients. They actually said that. And so that, that to me says everything you need to know. The second thing here is that this is a broker, right? This is supposed to tell you exactly the assets that are in your account, exact margin that you have. And they admitted as part of this FINRA settlement without admitting or denying wrongdoing, but all there is is wrongdoing here, that they got that wrong as well. What more do you want from where you're trading other than the trust to know that your order is safe and that your accounts are accurate? Those two things they failed on. Yes, they can hire Gallagher, who used to be at the SEC for five years back in 2011 to 15, to be their chief legal officer and pay him $30 million. And they can say how they don't take a salary, yet they pay more for personal security, by the way, than they do make on salary, which obviously does not include their stock component. You know, and it's just forcing this stuff out like this right now, settle FINRA, let's go public and go. It's scary. And when they're making the most of their money from crypto trading, which they are, and within crypto trading where they're making money, most of that is Dogecoin. How fleeting is that? So I would rather on Coinbase or crypto and Virtu for payment for order flow trading. That's how I would look at it. This thing together could be a disaster. Yeah. And we had Bob Greifeld on earlier this week on Fast Money. And he, and obviously, I think I want to say he's the chairman of Virtu. I'm sure I'm going to get added at by somebody, but he talked about the importance of Virtu and the fact that the market's just looking at what they do incorrectly. And I happen to agree with the guy, and I agree with you as well, Danny. But what I found interesting about this conversation you just had is why did they hire that guy Gallagher as, as for their legal for, for, for their legal team? I mean, that, that was the guy that used to do the pumpkin bit, right, back in the day or no? Yeah, <laughs> the watermelon bit guy. Uh, there seems to be window dressing all over the place. And Danny just mentioned the crypto trading. We know that obviously it had this huge leg up in Q1 and it had this huge leg down in Q2. That's probably very good for volumes. I'll just mention this. I think that they disclosed at 34% of their crypto revenue was in Doge, which went from basically zero this year, like one or two cents to 75 cents the day that Elon Musk was touting it on Saturday Night Live in the first week of May. And then that crypto was what, 17% of their total revenues. But here's the thing that I find really interesting about this company. We know that there's been all these new market entrants in the last year and a half. We know that there was a lot of stimulus. We know that a lot of people were forced at home. We know that these are really easy on-ramps. And this was basically a pop culture phenomenon, both the meme stock trading 
and the crypto trading. Well, here's the deal, guys. I mean, the average account, I think they said they had 18 million funded accounts and they have $80 billion in assets. You guys do the math there. What's the average account size? You know what I mean? This is not a particularly sustainable sort of business model because we know that when they're trading options the way they're doing, and the options volume was huge, a huge percent of their revenues also, they're basically seeing pure speculation on their platform, and that's what's going on. It's just like another video game. I think we started on the tape in January, and I think, Danny, you kind of like summed it up pretty correctly then, that we have people who are gambling on crypto on their iPhone. They're gambling on sports on their iPhone, whether it be DraftKings or FanDuel, which is proper gambling. They're not actually making any bones about what they exist to do, right? right. And then, obviously, yep. Robinhood in the stock market. Yeah, and listen— Analysts and investors, this is a pretty transparent model in the sense of they'll know where Doge is because if you have $80 billion in assets and you know that a certain percentage of that is crypto and Doge goes, goes from $0.50 cents to $0.10, cents, it's not hard to quickly model what their asset level looks like. This isn't brain surgery. And this could be, you know, again, we keep calling the top. What is going to be the top? What are people going to look back and say, oh, this was it? I got to say, there's a good chance that this is it. <laughs> you know, a meme company going public that trades meme stocks can get pretty, pretty tricky. Well, I would also add one other thing. They said they're leaving a large chunk of their IPO for their clients. Let me tell you this. Talk about plugging your clients with something. You know what I mean? Like it may work. It may not. I mean, listen, you know, the direct listing of uh, Coinbase's IPO, the reference price was $250. It traded as high as 430 Now that was a direct listing. The company didn't offer any shares, but within a week or two, it's back at that 250 price. This may have very different dynamics. There's obviously going to be lockups and the like here. But again, to your point, Danny, if they're placing a large chunk of this in their customers' hands, you tell me, are they going to have diamond hands? Yeah, we always looked at that when we were, you know, any anyone that ran a fund, a hedge fund or mutual fund, you would look at what what percentage of the IPO went into retail hands. Nothing wrong with retail owning it. It's just never it's never a good recipe for first day trading when when you know that uh, those aren't quote to your point Dan, diamond hands. So for them to say, "Oh, we we want to we want to reward our customers with, you know, with giving them shares. Never a good sign. Don't don't fall for that out there, guys. Don't fall for the okie dokie, I think as Don Lemon says. Now, one other thing directly related Crypto, obviously, is this Tether, this stablecoin out there. And I'm sure it'll be the subject of a future rip off the tape of a rot segment. But I just want to make people aware that this thing is now being questioned by regulators, questioned by countries. And I want to say one thing that is the most important thing. If they indeed have all these dollars backing up this coin, then where are, are the commercial paper assets that they claim that they have? They have over $30 billion in commercial paper that is supposed to be supporting this stablecoin, and no one seems to know that would make them a top 10 dealer in commercial paper on Wall Street. So just keep an eye on that. And the fact that they've now are supplying an insurance company called Bridge Mutual to protect these assets, which is, by the way, funded by them and funded by more tether. It reminds me of the subprime crisis when Moody's would rate these subprime CDO pools. And guess what? The five to six percent of money that was over collateralized in these bond portfolios was made up of other subprime bonds and not cash. So we're coming now to the portion of On the Tape, the podcast, which I love to listen to. I'm a participant of, but when Danny Moses does something we call rip off the tape, that's required listening. So Danny's going to rot right now on Shikari Richardson, an Olympic hopeful who failed not a performance-enhancing drug test, but a marijuana drug test. Yeah, so it's not steroids. It was marijuana. She didn't say, oh, I don't know how I got in there like Baffert. I don't know how the horse got something. She admitted that basically she made a mistake. 
the people out there that are saying, oh, it's a performance enhancer. Okay, well, that would go against every argument for the people that are anti-cannabis and anti-marijuana, you know, considering, oh, it makes you lazy. Oh, it does this. Guess what? She's the fastest female sprinter in the world, right? And she took ownership of it. If she was playing quarterback in the NFL, she'd be allowed to play on Sunday. If she was playing point guard in the NBA, she would be allowed to play tonight in the playoffs. But because it's the Olympics and it's amateur, I get it. And she took responsibility for it. But I actually think this is going to be another quote, positive turning point, not just because she admitted it and she has a great attitude about it and says she'll be back and if she can run the Olympics, great. Whatever sponsorship she's lose now, hopefully she gains in cannabis industry later in life because she'll be a spokesperson for it, possibly. But my God, it's legal in her home state where she trains. And yes, she messed up and she admitted it. And it's just very frustrating right now for the arguments that are still being made about this. I mean, so you should you can take alcohol, not a problem. You can take these over-the-counter anti-inflammatories, not a problem. But a natural substance, which is proven to really have no ill effects on the body, can't be used for a sprinter. And I'm sure she's not the only one, but she's the most famous and best one that tested positive. And it's just really frustrating. This could be a turning point. I actually think it'll end up being a positive as far as regulation goes for cannabis. It's kind of ironic that this headline hits on a week where Bill Cosby, accused sex offender who is sitting in jail, I think accused by dozens of women, gets out of jail on a technicality. And when I listen to what you were just saying, Danny, about what this woman is going through, this very accomplished athlete, probably one of the best athletes in the world, it sounds like a technicality when you think about how, you know, marijuana Marijuana use is, is treated in other sports and that sort of thing. So to me, I want to join your rot there, buddy. I think it sounds like absolutely ridiculous. And the other thing is, and I've heard you on this podcast and I've heard you on our show on Fast Money when we first met you talking about the medical benefits of marijuana. I, I could see why a high functioning athlete might be thinking about using that product for the medical benefits. Is there is there some fairness to that? Yeah. Would you rather these athletes take opioids for pain or whatever reason she was taking it? And by the way, you're allowed to have a certain amount of it in your system. I don't know how all that's measured. You're allowed to have a certain amount. And I'm sure that people take it that are training for the Olympics, but they know when not to take it and when it may show up. And and yes, did she fail at the test? Yes. Did she take ownership of it? Yes. But she makes sure that's still the best sprinter in the world. And it is not a performing enhancing substance. And I think that's the key here. Yeah. I've fashioned myself a high performance athlete and I don't puff the magic dragon. And by the way, he wasn't accused. He was actually convicted, Dan, as you know, and the technicality stuff is exactly that. A technicality. Maybe we should get the great Brady Cobb back on at some point. Let him discuss the merits of the marijuana. Guy Adami, before we get out of here, you just said you are a high performing athlete. You are. I don't think that many of our listeners know that in 2012, you completed a full Ironman. And what did that entail, Guy Adami? That's a 2.4-mile open-water swim. In the case of this Ironman, it was in the Hudson River, for those familiar with it, in August. Uh, Then you get on a bike and do a 112-mile bicycle on the Palisades Parkway to be finished with a marathon. That's 26.2 miles for, again, you playing the home game, and you have to hit certain time points throughout the day. You have 17 hours to finish. I did it in 16 hours and 19 minutes. It's amazing. Honestly, at the time when you did that, I couldn't believe it. There was a New York Times feature on it. You were my hero. You remain my hero. I suspect in the days after you completed that Ironman, you could have used a little bit of the Mary Jane. No, and I will tell you, I appreciate that, number one. I've never puffed the magic dragon, number two. I'm sort of in the Robert De Niro camp. I could see Danny more in the Ben Stiller camp, but that's just me. 
you know what, guy, we're going to get together one day, we're going to smoke together, and you're going to watch The Big Short together, and that's how we're going to do it. I'm going to introduce you to both things at the same time. When we come back, there have been some great calls in history. Babe Ruth calling his home run shot. Elaine Gazzarelli. But one of the greatest calls in the last hundred years came from our next guest, Meredith Whitney. Stay tuned. Meredith Whitney is the Chief Financial Officer of KindBody, a high-growth health and technology company focused on women. She's been called the Oracle of Wall Street, catapulting to fame as an analyst in October of 2007 when she correctly predicted the crash in Citibank. Over the course of her more than 25-year career, Meredith has served in various roles, including CFO of Zoom and running her own advisory firm and hedge fund. She earned a spot on Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World back in 2009 and Fortune Magazine's list for 50 Most Powerful Women 2008 through 2013. So Meredith, it's great, obviously, to have you join us. At some one way, shape, or form, the three of us cross paths professionally, which is remarkable if you think about it. Wall Street actually is a really small community. Really small. I remember what a big deal it was when you got your show. It's interesting that you say that because the genesis of Fast Money actually started on the trading floor of CIBC World Markets. For me, CIBC had our miracle day, which you remember, I'm sure, Meredith. Yep, of course. Where that day we give our commissions to different charities. CNBC had a crew at the desk that day. Nobody wanted to appear on air. And one of the guys asked me if I'd be willing to do it. And I did it. I went out with Bertha Coombs and Liz Clayman. It went well, and 16 years later, here we are. But listen, that's my story. Your story is far more interesting, and your story and Danny Moses' story cross paths as well. Way back when, early 90s, mid-90s. Exactly. So the first iteration of the first subprime blow-up in Otto Meredith was working with Steve Eisman and Vincent Daniel in research, and I was institutional equity sales, and I tell the story all the time that Steve Eisman would come out to the podium for the morning call. That's when he would make his research calls. We would get it from all of our analysts. And literally one day he got up to the podium and he said, the following eight stocks are going to zero. So this is like 1998, I think, Meredith. Yep. It was kind of the subprime auto credit, home equity loan. This is prior to the global financial crisis. And so he gets off the podium because Steve's always very direct to the point. And I grabbed Meredith and Vince and I go, all right, can you guys come over to my desk for a second? How am I making this call to like Jim Cramer or somebody that I'm covering? The following eight stocks are going to zero. Can you guys help me? (laughs) So (laughs) Meredith and Vinny were running numbers and spreadsheets for Steve, but it was always the most entertaining because on Wall Street, salespeople would walk back into research and sit down with some analysts at a time. But it was certainly the most entertaining room was when Vinny and Meredith and Steve were hanging out. So yeah, Meredith and I worked together in the late 90s and we both learned really from Steve Eisman learned a ton from him and it's taught us well in our careers. I used to, so when we covered subprime auto, I would go to Houston and drive the loop to use cars dealerships to see who was doing the financing, the glamorous life. And it was really because of that time, 97, 98, when you saw companies go out of business because the securitization market shut and there was such a short window of financing. And so if the securitization market shut for three months, it was game over that you could actually conceive of what happened during the great credit crisis, because we had lived it. No question about that. But, you know, listen, most people know you for obviously the call in Citibank. And I'm just curious if we can drill down for a few minutes. I mean, that was a courageous thing to do for a myriad of different reasons. If you remember the environment back then, 
Can you speak to what were the steps leading up to that, the work that was involved? Because you just don't wake up one morning and make the call that you made. It was actually based on the fact that there had been an analyst meeting to get to know, it was a drinks party, supposedly, to get to know the new CFO of City. The irony is that Gary Crittenden doesn't drink, he's Mormon. So it turned into basically an analyst event. And someone said, one of the nerdier analysts, and I mean that in a really complimentary way, said, oh, I've given up on City. It's impossible to model because they had basically scrambled the egg and restated every single quarter. So the fact that I was always the odd person out because I was the only girl in the room, I was like, this is ridiculous. It's your job to model city. So I ended up doing very basic analysis and just looking at leverage ratios and comparing city to the other banks. I had that report that was published on October 31st done right after they reported. So it was like, let's say it's October 15th. And I sat on it to wait for the Fed meeting. And right after the Fed meeting, because I didn't want to get in the way of the Fed doing anything, I published the report. I had to make it so simple. And that's something else I got from Steve, frankly. Like, if you want people to understand what you're saying and the power of that is simplifying something that is complex and delivering it in ways that people get. And I think that was the real power of City because the analysis was basic. But importantly, with that report, I was trying to give city solutions. They were so out of whack from a leverage perspective because they'd gone on this huge acquisition spree without issuing any new equity that they could cut their dividend. They'd have to cut their dividend, raise equity or sell. I think it was a hundred billion in assets. So it wasn't just like this, the sky's falling, sell city. I was trying to give them optionality. And that's been thematic with everything I've done throughout my career. But holy smokes, I was nervous about it. And I'll tell you, the reaction of people were so crazy. It was an absolute personal attack, which I didn't expect because it was math. Blame the math, not me. Exactly. So Meredith, I was thinking about that because just this week or late last week when the stress test came out for the banks again, which are somewhat meaningless now. I mean, they're all pretty strong, obviously. But it was funny. City was the one that I've seen so far that actually did not raise their dividend yet coming back out and made me think to the time, which when you did say they're going to have to cut their dividend and everyone's like, holy smokes, what do you mean? And you're right. It's just math. But let's talk about being on the sell side. And we've talked about this before. If you make a short call on the sell side and you're wrong, you're fired. If you make a short call on the sell side and you're right, most people still hate you, but that's okay. But back then, and even now, if you're a woman on Wall Street and you make a bold call like that and you even get 10% wrong, you get vilified. And I just want to talk about the culture of Wall Street still and women on Wall Street and in so many ways, I hope it's advanced and gotten better. But in so many ways, it's still like an old boys club. And I know you became not disenchanted with Wall Street, but you're moving on. We're going to talk about what you're doing now and many other things. But what was that like? Because did you feel it was a double standard when you were being critiqued for calls that you were making? You know, I never was that self-aware. So I didn't think about it. I'd say it was clear with the stuff that I said around the municipal market that there is no denying it because Bill Clinton, George Soros, and Nouriel Rabini were saying the same thing and people went after me, but that's fine. That was math too. Yeah, I don't even know the experience through walking through my shoes. I'm always grateful that I'm not a guy. So in some cases, I didn't have any direct peers. So I felt independent enough to do my own thing, always. And so it was liberating in some respects. I wish that there had been more women. There were a lot of women who started with me, but not many women who stayed. I was 37 when I made the city call. I don't think I had any friends from the beginning of my career that still were on Wall Street. Women. I hear you. But I want to clear something up right now for those people out there. People always said, oh, 
Steve gave Meredith the idea. Oh, it was just Steve. Let me tell you something. When you called on our trading desk and it was Steve Porter, Vinny and I, he was just as anxious to talk to you about what you had found or your thoughts and everything. So just to clear the air out there for anyone who thinks that Meredith was a puppet for Steve, in no way, shape or form was that the case. This was your call. It was on your own. It was the work that you did. I had forgotten about that because talk about sexist. I mean, that was stinking maddening. And that also clearly shows that people didn't know Steve because Steve does not have a lot of time. He barely talks to people for two seconds. And I hadn't talked to him for ages. I must have been in his office because it was rapid fire in terms of the reports that I was issuing that were probably more powerful than the city report, but the city was the canon that was heard around the world. But did he influence all of my reports? I mean, it was so, so absurd. Like it didn't make me mad. I was just like, that's pathetic. It's absolutely pathetic. What's interesting is you were able to persevere. And I have an interesting question for you. I think it's an interesting question. You know, I've talked to people that have summited Everest. I've talked to people that have completed Ironman and they always feel pressure to do it again to validate the first time they did it, if that makes sense. So the question I asked, did you feel in any way, shape, or form that vis-a-vis that 07 call, you needed to come up with another one to validate how right you were? Does that make sense, Meredith? Because it leads into the municipal bond call you made, I think, in 2010. Maybe women are different. I've never felt that way. Because I always felt like I was well known within the financial services banking industry, but I didn't need to be known outside of that. And it was never a priority for me. So doing good work and being relevant to my peers has always been important. I'm not just a little bit competitive, but how I got into the municipal space was the government obviously involved itself intensely after, I guess, starting in September 2008 from a financial standpoint. And you had the huge rally in 2009, there was really no fundamental work that was left to be done on the banks or financials because it was a macro move. It wasn't a stock specific move. And I've always been data driven. I've always looked at consumer data, most particularly because it's so granular, you can really be right with it. And it was actually that that drove me that and retail data, which is also granular, that drove me into the state research. And then I couldn't believe how backwards state reporting was. And my thesis there was I was on a hunt for growth and also the U.S. market was bifurcated. So there were states that could not grow because they were so crippled by housing. And then they were also so crippled, I learned from a huge loads of debt that the states took on and municipalities took on. So it was the numbers drove me there more than anything. And you know, it shows what a true nerd I am because that wasn't a commercial move on my part. I made a bunch of money around my career covering stocks. I spent a bunch of money doing all the work on the states. And I guess people were mad at that call too because it wasn't an easy thing to trade on, but that wasn't the point of my research. Meredith, I worked at MBIA, Muni Bond Insurance, not on the CDO side of that business, but actually on the underwriting side of municipal research. I covered airport bonds and dormitory bonds for colleges. And so when you were talking about this, even prior to your 60 minutes, but even prior to your book, Fate of the States, you were already compiling research that you had gathered. And I believe it started from the, as you just talked about, the sand states, Arizona, California, Nevada, and Florida, having the biggest impact potentially from a housing perspective and what that would mean. And I could not have agreed with you more. And so it was a question of whether you would want to trade Naveen from that or whatever, whatever was touching the muni bond. And there was a lot of calls that were right about it. No one could foresee the intervention 
government would have at every level, even today, the moral hazard that's out there today. So in a non-government intervention world, and maybe that's not a world that we want to see, the call was spot on. And it's actually, if I remember, Stockton, California went bankrupt a couple of years later. And I just want to back up the equity which you've built. I wouldn't say your brand with your knowledge over time. Another point of clarification, you were the one that introduced Michael Lewis basically to Wall Street for him to find the characters in the big short. Our phone call from Michael Lewis came through you. So he obviously saw something and all the research that you had been doing and the foundation that you had built there. And obviously, I know you were mentioned in the book as well, but there's no one trick pony here. It's eight tricks, 10 tricks in terms of what you've accomplished here. So just talk about maybe that genesis and working with Michael also during the time period, because I know you had to talk to him almost every day. Well, actually, it was cool. So Michael called me in March of 2008, and I returned his phone call because it was like Michael Lewis from Bloomberg is called. I returned his phone call and I said, Michael Lewis, uh, blindside Michael Lewis, because Ken Mullis had talked about how Wall Street had really become what Michael Lewis described in the blind side in terms of game changing. And he was like, no one's ever asked me that. They say Michael Lewis, liars poker, but never blindside. At any rate, so then he shadowed me for a long while. When people really wanted to hear what I had to say, I filled up that huge conference room at uh, CIBC or I guess it was Oppenheimer at the time. I mean, there were like 75 people in the room and he was with me and I didn't introduce him because there was no point, but some people recognized him. And then he'd be on calls and he was going down a different path. And I was like, you've got to talk to these guys at front point and the rest is history. But he also, by the way, I could tell him a story and he would tell it back to me and I would learn something, right? He, he didn't have to, have to be there. The guy is such an extraordinary mind and what a storyteller. No question about it. And you mentioned blindside. And this is obviously a bit of an awkward segue, but a lot of people think you might have been blindsided when you appeared on 60 Minutes. To the extent that you want to talk about that or talk about how that came to pass, I'm sure the audience would love to hear. I had said no to 60 Minutes, I don't know, 10 times. And the producer snuck into an event I was speaking at. It was like women in banking or something. And I really didn't want to do it because I remembered when the camera crew used to jump out at somebody and all the scary things that go with when 60 Minutes wants to cover you, you're usually in trouble. But the way they explained it to me was it was going to be constructive. Chris Christie was going to be on. And at the time, he wasn't raising the same alarms that I was concerned about. And so I thought it was going to be constructive. And I think it was for the most part. But what was taken out of it? I mean, if you actually watch the interview, Steve Cross said, when will people care about this? When will people care about this? And I said, six months because the fiscal year end for states is June. I mean, it was pretty simple, but people teased out of it what they wanted to. My husband thinks the reason why so many people watched that interview is because there was a great football game on right before. So there was the carryover. I don't know. I mean, you can't change the past. And I mean, it's all fine. Some of the relationships you had within government, I think there was a period of time where you actually had thought years ago about working at the Fed. I'm sure Guy would much rather have you running the Fed than the current administration that's in there right now. But I'm sure you still keep in touch with Sheila Bear and some of these people that worked in government. Are you? And if so, what are their thoughts on things? The people that have come and gone from government positions as well. Sheila Bear, I was, uh, I wouldn't say close, but I spent some time with her. I was closer to the Fed people and I wouldn't want to speak for them because that's unfair. But I think that I'm still very close with some of them. I think that They've seen this before, and inflation is a really scary thing. I remember the first time I went to Tom Honig's uh, office in the Kansas City Fed, he's got uh, framed Reich marks on his wall. We have to be careful. I hope they're right, and it's a transitory inflation. 
It's interesting, Meredith, and this might be an off-the-wall question, but when you made your city call, I mean, you effectively were warning people, you're warning city, you're warning the market about what was taking place. Now, whether people heeded that warning or not, that's on them. If you felt that you saw something today, and I know you're not watching the markets as close as you used to, but if you thought you saw something that nobody else is pointing out, do you feel an obligation to come back to the Meredith Whitney of 20 years ago and point it out to the market in a world where nobody seems to want to point out some of the things that are going wrong? I did it differently. So when COVID hit, I would have gone to work for the former administration just to have an all hands on deck and help out. And I was willing to do the same for this administration. But the world is so polarized by partisan politics that I don't know that the intentions are best aligned. So I'd rather be on the inside doing things to help. And that's always been my focus. You see a problem and come up with a solution. I've never been a Monday morning quarterback and I've never wanted to be. We need solutions. It's a question of it just, they fall on deaf ears. What are you focused on now? I mean, you're away from Wall Street. My sense is you probably don't watch this stuff nearly as closely as you did 15, 20 or so years ago. Obviously, you want to talk about Kind Body, but just in terms of what you're working on personally, hobbies, interests, those things, passing fancy with the markets, something that you find interesting right now, Meredith. Oh, well, I mean, I'm immersed. I made the move over to the operations side of life about four years ago and been CFO in the CFO role ever since. And I love that. Like you put your head down and you work and you produce real things. So I look at the market. I still get great research and I read it, but I'm not glued to a screen anymore. And I don't have to have opinions. I have to have an opinion about how we're funded. And we just did the biggest round raise for women's health particularly fertility. So I'm thrilled. I still talk to investors all the time, but I don't have to be glued to my screen. So that's great. I read a ton. I'm reading H.R. McMaster's Dereliction of Duty right now, which is so horrifyingly depressing, but a good read anyway. I'm just having fun. So it's interesting that where I'm working now in terms of in the women's health space reminds me so much of when Danny and I first worked together, because in the 90s, you had securitization, which lowered the cost of capital and expanded credit, democratized credit for millions. I mean, the industry was explosive. So I didn't get my MBA because I didn't think I could get away from my desk in time. I feel like I got my MBA, CPA and CFA while working. But healthcare through technology is exactly where financial services was in the 90s in terms of technology allows companies like ours to lower cost and broaden the base. and the impact there is nothing short of just breathtaking. So I'm having as much fun now as I did in the 90s, which by the way, I had more fun in the 90s than I did in the aughts. So as much attention as I got in 07, 08, 09, I had a blast in the 90s. I was part of a team. It's hard to be on your own. Working with a team is always more fun. In your current role, doing something that you love, something I'm sure that you believe in your heart in as well, you're going to come across all these Wall Street people again. I'm sure you've already had conversation with bankers. I'm sure. What's it like to be on the other side of that trade in the sense of being able to tell the story on your terms? Tell me about that process. One thing that I used to get so annoyed with as a sell side analyst is you go to a meeting and people will be on their Blackberries at the time, the whole time, barely look up. People are just so rude when you're in the service industry. And it was just astounding. And the condescension, oi, I mean, I just like, I don't miss being on that side, on the sell side, because 
it's rotten treatment. And it's just like, were these people raised in barn kind of thing? So to be, you know, customers always right is always a great place to be. But I also am selling our story into institutions. But if you've got a really great story, and we do, people are much nicer. I like it entirely better. You know, I can't take any credit because I'm just a bean counter. Everybody else is executing. And that's a great place to be. I've carried relationships throughout my career on Wall Street. And that's really great. I mean, I, I'll say that some of my closest data, you and I are so close, but in terms of the corporate relationships I've had, even companies that I had sell ratings on, they've become really good professional friends. And I'm, that's the great thing about Wall Street. There are a lot of turkeys out there, but you can get to meet some really extraordinary people. There are mostly turkeys out there, and there's some extraordinary people, and you're one of those people, and I think you're being far too humble in terms of your role. And let's now drill down a little bit in terms of Kind Body. A lot of news out, really great things going on, how you got started. What are you excited about there? Well, I'm excited about the team I'm working with, first and foremost. I'm excited about the market opportunity. So we're lowering, our mission is to lower cost of family planning, fertility, and broadening the base. So typically only the top 1%, sort of the rich white women on the Upper East Side could afford IVF treatment for going to a fertility doctor. And that's just wrong. So we apply technology to the care we give and we're able to increase productivity by a factor of four and a half X, meaning you know when someone goes into fertility treatment, it's called a cycle. An average doctor does 10 cycles, 12 cycles a month. We're able to do north of 45. So we have clinics across the country. We just opened our ninth clinic yesterday in Austin, Texas. We'll have 12 more next year and we're growing and growing and growing. We also have partner clinics and it's a phenomenon. It's really incredible. We're getting employer after employer who wants to offer their employees fertility care. And so you guys know how tight the labor market is, incredibly tight. 58% of people would change jobs for fertility care, which is extraordinary. And particularly in a quest to find women and diversity, this is something that becomes a very big issue for people. And so it used to be a nice to have benefit. Now it's a must have benefit. I mean, it's a personal issue for me as well. In my 20s, there was a stigma associated with doing anything to increase your options later. Fertility treatment was stigmatized. And so I'm now 51. I have no kids. I took a mentor of mine to Foo Fighters at Madison Square Garden a, a week and a half ago, and she asked me what, what I was doing. And I told her and she started to cry. She has no kids too. I mean, you look at women, professional women, they have no kids or one kid. Now it's a badge of honor to freeze your eggs. And that gives me chills in terms of it's so incredible. And for employers, it levels the playing field with no, nothing, no single other thing could level the playing field for diversity, for women, men, LGBTQ+. This is progress in the most exciting way. Meredith, you made a comment before that even companies you had a sell-side report on, you're still friends with their CEOs or executives to this date. And I have the same kind of group of people on Wall Street. And there's a certain group of people on Wall Street, and a lot of smart people on Wall Street. But there's also a lot of Wall Street dependent people, meaning there's no other way that they can really make a career. There's no other way they can make money. And once you start making decent money on Wall Street, it kind of captivates you to a degree. However, there's a cohort of people, including yourself, that if they pull themselves out of that world and start using their brain and your brown education, I might add, for something else that can not just do good for society, but you can be successful. And that's powerful. And we've talked about it on the show before. 
how these kids are that are in college now, you know, before it was plug and play. All right, I'm going to go to business school. I'm going to get in the training program. I'm going to go. And I tell people, explore other avenues, explore the things, because it's amazing. You get trapped on Wall Street to a degree and you kind of never leave. So I applaud you. Obviously, we'll always be friends, but I applaud you for taking that move. And, there, you know, again, there are people that come to me and I'm sure come to you and say, hey, Danny Merritt, I'm thinking about making a change in, in my career. Like, nah, you should probably stay on Wall Street. You're probably, you should probably stay. You're not one of those people. So I'll always be your biggest fan. Thank you so much. The training that you get, I mean, I wouldn't trade it for anything. I always think as an analyst, and I know I can outwork just about anyone because of the work ethic that's required to do well on Wall Street. So when we grew up on the street, it was the best of the best. No doubt about it. And when they do make the book, The Legends of Wall Street, Meredith, your name's going to be on it. By the way, Danny Moses' name will be in that book as well. Mine will not for anybody playing at home. But in terms of great books, and I can't believe it's eight years ago, but Fate of the States, The New Geography of American Prosperity, you wrote that again eight years ago. That book, it rang true then. I think it actually rings truer today. So I encourage people to go to their local Barnes & Noble or wherever people buy things, Amazon.com, and check that out. But Meredith Whitney, we want to thank you for joining us on the tape. It's been a pleasure. Really fun to be with you guys. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet. If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.